The problem is, you know, there's 45 million people in this country that are credit invisible, 26 million people who don't have credit history, 19 million uh, who have thin credit files, and then there's a ton of folks who live overseas as well. And when those people go through and try to verify and they're not in the database, there's this perverse incentive where uh, an organization is being charged because a vendor doesn't have coverage over a legitimate person. And I just felt like those incentives were perverse. And so we created our business model um, to align uh, our incentives as a for-profit company with the user's incentives and with the government's incentives and with the organization's incentives, which is to say we only get paid when we successfully verify that somebody is in fact who they're claiming to be. Welcome back everybody to another edition of the Start It Up podcast. Today we have on Blake Hall, the founder and CEO of IDME. Um, I had met Blake a few months ago back at the Synapse conference in Tampa, which by the way, congratulations on Synapse rounding up that many top level speakers. Um, but uh, had met Blake there in Tampa and was beyond impressed and uh, just kind of kept digging in more and more to his work and um, time had passed and I had just seen on NBC News them highlighting a story on this company called IDME and the importance and all the money they had saved tax dollars and you know, agencies and bureaus. And I was like, oh my gosh, I remember that guy. So reached out to Blake, was gracious enough to give us some time um, to do the interview. And uh, this is just a great conversation. Um, obviously, we talk about you know some of the, thing, the fraudulent activities that go on, uh, but also get into social media verification toward the end, which I was really passionate about as it deals a lot with um, you know online bullying and things of this nature. So this this conversation really spans a, a lot of awesome topics that are very pertinent and are very right now. So I know that you're going to enjoy this conversation. And lastly, we have grown exponentially these last three months, and it's because you guys are sharing the episodes, talking about them, and it really means the world to us. And so I, from the bottom of my heart, uh, really appreciate that. So if this uh, podcast resonates with you, uh, please make sure you give it a share. If you want to give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or you know, wherever you find your podcast, that always helps as well. All right, so let's get to it. ID Mies, Blake Hall. Welcome back to another edition of the Started Up Podcast. Excited today because I have on Blake Hall, the founder of ID.me. We're going to get into how he started that and why. Blake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Don. So not going to lie, I was like, wait a second. I, I met that guy. Saw, saw you on NBC News the other day. And uh, I had no idea that ID.me had gone to this size. Um, although, fun fact, I have used ID.me. We'll get into that in a little bit. But tell us right now, like, what is ID.me? And then we'll get into the origin stories. So ID.me is a, a single sign-on, a login that helps you prove your identity online. Uh, the concept is very similar to what PayPal does for payments, where you can attach, you know, a bank account or credit cards and then have um, an account that allows you to, like, seamlessly check out across merchants. What we realized is that uh, nobody had really solved that login uh, problem for your legal identity for proving who you are, and um, and and we're all familiar with consumers as uh, you know, but maybe creating a new password is, and managing passwords is the most annoying part of the internet. Uh, and so, in 2011, uh, President Obama uh, and the National Institute of Standards and Technology had this vision for a competitive marketplace where consumers could, you know, pick the login provider of their choice, verify once, and then 
take their identity with them. And once they verified who they are, could you know seamlessly access government benefits, could open up bank accounts, could access their healthcare information. Um, and I was really passionate about that vision and a, a world where consumers control their identity and not data brokers or credit bureaus. Um, I'm a military veteran, so we started by focusing on the military community, and you know that was uh, that was 12 years ago. Man, there are now five follow-up questions that I immediately want to jump <laughs> into and ask them all at the same time. Um, where do I start first? Uh, the, the first thing that uh, jumped out to me um, is that in some ways it's it's kind of scary for some if like if there's one central hub like let's just say that you're your password organizer right so if you use google passwords or whatever you're like man i better not screw that one hub up because then everything is screwed up so tell like walk me through like the assurance for people saying if id me is that central hub of identifying who i am how am i to make sure that they don't have data breaches or they're not screwing things up Yes. So first, actually, the way that things are done right now is far scarier than the model that we're introducing here. Uh, and there's a few reasons why. Um, you know, one is that your like credit card is theoretically capable of going to like anywhere where Visa is accepted, which is everywhere. But if it actually starts to like fly around merchants or there's weird activity like a big screen TV that's purchased at a Walmart, you know, at three in the morning. Um, your bank can see that and be like, hey, Don, like we're going to go ahead and, and suspend your card here until we're sure that that's you that's doing that. And, and unfortunately, that's not the reality today. If your name and date of birth and social is stolen, people are falling for these job scams where they're giving pictures of their government ID to criminal actors. That criminal actor can then attack you know, your healthcare records. They can open up bank accounts in your name. They can access government benefits. And you as an individual have no recourse that, you know, you have to go to like each agency and play defense and be like, that wasn't me. It can take hours of your life. Whereas a network approach that works like Visa and the banks can be like, oh, like Don's account got compromised. We see that. We shut it down. Hey, organizations that were involved, that was fraud. Um, that's, that's a far better model for consumers because you have a network that's looking out for you. And it's why modern banking works the way that it does. It's obviously enormously effective when you have, um, you know, Visa and MasterCard and, and Chase and Citibank and USAA looking out for your interests. Um, the second point is that uh, if you look at who currently powers identity verification, it's credit bureaus like Equifax or largely foreign-owned data brokers like LexisNexis. Um, the Equifax breach you know, it's pretty clear that they, they haven't done a good job of protecting your personal information. LexisNexis, um, you know, and other data brokers, they start harvesting data on you usually when you're, I think, 13 or 14 years old. Uh, you don't have the ability to opt out of it. Um, you know, they resell it in many different ways without you really knowing kind of who's involved with it, multiple breaches and class action lawsuits. And so, um, so everything needs to be compared to like, you know, relative to what, and the stance that we have is like after the Equifax breach, 147 million Americans, give or take the Anthem healthcare breach, 80 million Americans, the OPM breach over 20 million Americans and our national security personnel. Um, at this point, your name and date of birth and social are already out there. A uh, name, date of birth, social sells for $2 on the dark web. Wow. 
what IDME does is wow. we think. Hold, hold on, hold on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to let that moment pass. I'm sorry. Did yeah. you say $2? Two bucks. Wow. Two bucks. Yeah. And then, and then from there, your open season, your, your free game. That, that's right. And, and like right now, you know, what, uh, what is like selling for a lot more um, is like driver's license images and things like that. That's where you're up into like the tens of dollars. But as far as like your, your demographic data, that's static, there have been so many data breaches that that toothpaste is out of the tube. And so what IDME does is essentially verify that the person claiming that name data birth social is in fact Don and is yeah. not a criminal. But as far as the data that we hold, the bad guys largely already have it for most of the adults in America. Wow. By the way, I'm assuming it's that inexpensive because there's just that many people that have been breached. Mm -hmm. There's just that many people out there that have like, we've got everything we need. And it's just that, wow, that's uh, scary. Um, yeah. So I've got to ask, I mean, it's like, this is massive. How does one person that was in the military say, I mean, that's like saying, well, I, I shouldn't compare it to apples or you had an idea that is massively difficult, unbelievably yeah. intricate. How the heck did you start? Where did you start? I mean, like, this would be like akin to me going, you know what? Like, cancer's bad. I'm going to see if I can. I mean, like, that's huge. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I didn't really understand kind of the journey that I was starting out on. I don't know that many founders, you know, do understand just that's, how big yes. the, the problem is that they're solving. You know, so the, the part of it was learning and iterating the business and the business model. Um, the other part was just kind of like following the problem down to its roots, as uh, Robert Frost, the poet, uh, said, you know, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Um, in the military, I hunted uh, high-value targets. In Iraq, I was a reconnaissance platoon leader, so I had scouts and snipers. But the actual job that they assigned us uh, when we got to Kuwait was they said, forget everything that you guys have learned. You're going to be using signal intelligence to, um, to, to run kill capture missions against high-value targets. And so for a year and a half um, in Mosul and Baghdad and Karbala, um, you know, all the fun spots uh, in Iraq in 2006 and 2007, uh, I hunted terrorists. And I didn't realize at the time, but, um, you know, when I got back and I saw that there were all these data breaches and that credit bureaus, you know, and the question and answer method was, was increasingly less effective at you know, proving who you are, like what your mortgage payment or car, you know, you drive or whatever. Um, I realized that I'd had this education and identity where normal people have the opposite pattern of life of a terrorist. You're probably not swapping your cell phone every week or two or changing your phone number or swapping your SIM cards or using voice biometric couriers to evade detection. And once you realize that bad guys really thrive on doing just the bare minimum, like the short tenure to defraud an organization, whereas normal people have their phones for usually two or three years. And like, they don't typically change their phone number all that often. Um, there's a better way to verify who people are. And, um, and we were focused specifically on one community, the military community when we first started. And I think the combination of that initial education on identity in the military and focusing on a specific group of consumers to get going, uh, in this case, the military community, 
really helped us find like deep roots that formed the foundation for the company. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I just thought about the unbelievably cool parallels from what you just told me on um, being objective driven and nothing is more laid out and objective than the military. And yet at the same time, when you got there, yeah, everything we plan for it's thrown out. We're going to be learning along the way. I think that was just a wonderful metaphor. Um, so obviously the learning along your way has been the journey. Give me some reflections on what you thought this was, but it wasn't. Well, I was so naive when I first started. Uh, I had an offer to go work for uh, McKinsey and Company coming out of Harvard Business School. And um, I thought that's what I would want to do. But then uh, one of my classmates, you know, wrote a check for like $80,000 uh, into what was then just an academic project at Harvard Business School that is now, you know, IDME that I'd started with a couple of uh, fellow classmates. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just, you know, scale this thing up and sell it real quick. And then I'll go work for McKinsey. And I mean, I still can't believe how naive I was. Just, I didn't know anything about business. Um, and uh, once I realized, hey, you know, it, it takes years and years of effort and dedication to build something that matters and that lasts. Uh, and I, and I had taken money. I told McKinsey, like, look, I feel obligated to, to see this through, like, you know, that amount of money from a friend, um, and David Tish, who, you know, invested like $20,000. He's the first managing director of Techstars. Um, I was like, I, I have to see this through in order to fulfill like my obligation to those folks who invested in me. And, um, you know, what I, what I didn't know is just how all consuming, you know, it, it would be, uh, it, it was unbelievably stressful. It's like raising a kid the first two years, like everything can kill it and it's not self-sufficient. And, you know, I couldn't even finish workouts at the gym. Like I'd work out for 15 or 20 minutes. And I'd be like, we don't have product market fit. My like kid is dying. I need to go back and work on it. And then, you know, even when you do find like a team and product market fit and the business is cruising, there are still just these enormous challenges where you're still riding a ro roller coaster of emotions um, every day. And that's been my reality for the last, uh, 12 years. Yeah. I, uh, I can only imagine, especially being in this arena of verification fraud, there's always, there's never it's double negatives, former English teacher. There's <laughs> never not going to be a time where you're up against that. Um, so how, how does the team, handle, I, I, I don't really want to go down a rabbit hole too much of work-life balance, but like, that's extremely stressful. You're in the job of stress, constant stress. How do you manage, balance that? Well, I think um, this is, again, something the military taught me very well is that what's happening inside to you and what you feel, uh, you know, is, is natural. Like in combat, you're scared, uh, you know, and, and there's <laughs> all the emotions going on, but what you project to your team as the leader, um, the, the ability to overcome those fears and to be bold and to be brave, um, and to do that as a, as a team and as a unit, um, that's, that's my job. And you have to blend the hard and the soft. You have to, you have to blend the strength and the confidence with the humility to listen and to learn, 
Um, you have to know when to like stick to your guns and and when and when to be more flexible and, and malleable. And honestly, that it comes down to like judgment. Um, and it comes down to caring about the team more than you care about yourself, caring about the cause and the end that you're striving for uh, more than uh, whatever it costs you in the short term. Um, and I think, you know, in the military, it costs you your life uh, to protect our way of life. And um, and so, I, you know, in that sense, if you have a mission that matters and you have bosses that are worth working for, and that's what I always strive to look for in my team, like would I work for the person who reports to me, uh, people will stick with you, uh, even when the times are really tough. And in fact, those can be some of the most transformative moments Bonding. in life. Yeah. 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 Back on it. So um, I, I remember I talked to you earlier and that, like you said, there's always something coming at us. I imagine um, because you're trying to ensure trust online, there's got to be agents out there that are sowing seeds of distrust. <clears throat> yeah. You know, um, well, and there's just very complicated topics surrounding all of this, right? So if you think about um, like privacy, so so privacy has two fundamental pillars. One is freedom from observation, uh, but the other one is freedom from unauthorized access to your stuff. And and so when you think about identity verification, where it's like, well, I don't want to be observed, but you know, if I'm interacting with the government or with the healthcare institution, they need to know that I'm me before they give like my healthcare records, you know, up to some user on the internet. Um, so, so you're trying to find this like balance between doing enough to verify that you're you, getting you access to what you need, maybe not viewing what you do for what you're accessing, but yeah, and and that just requires a lot of education because it's not it's not like a one or a zero, it's not binary. And, and in fact, uh, there's a federal agency called NIST that um, that is responsible for setting these requirements for identity verification that we adhere to when we verify identity. And, and because not a lot of folks are familiar with those standards and like NIST really isn't out there kind of educating the public on like why they set the standards where they do, um, it becomes easy for, for the seeds of misinformation to get sown. And, and so in our model, when we verify somebody and we empower that consumer to take their data with them through a portable login, what we're doing is we're disrupting this industry that's powered by data brokers where their business model depends on selling your data 30 different you know, ways. And you've probably never heard of many of these companies that are involved in it. John Oliver did a hysterical segment on the data broker industry and, and some of their practices, you know, super creepy. Um, and so what, what that industry will do, they spend as much on lobbying as like the big tech companies do. They look to like actively stir the pot to try to make people afraid of, you know, this new way of doing identity verification, even though the current way of doing identity verification, you know, is, is just way, way creepier and, and unsafe um, based on, you know, the data breaches and the lawsuits and these companies sell data to ICE to help deport people and stuff, you know, it's, it's really crazy. So you at the beginning of the show, you talked about the fact that you kind of started off with the military community first, other than the obvious answer of, because that was your background, why else did you choose people in the military to start doing verifications? Was it more for national security or because that was just the people, you know? 
I think every entrepreneur, when you start, you have to start with something that you know. And so I knew nothing about business, but what I did know about was identity uh, from my time in combat. And I knew the military community. I'm a third generation soldier. And so the initial idea was, um, I noticed that Craigslist was missing from a lot of uh, bases and military communities um, that maybe weren't large enough for them to be included on the Craigslist, you know, kind of city map. But since military families move so often, I was like, man, that looks like kind of a white spot in the market. Um, and maybe if we could build something that's more trusted, like the military community trusts each other, maybe you could do that for college campuses, that there would be a way to scale like a trusted version of Craigslist that could transform that industry. Um, in the same way that when like Travis Kalanick took on the taxi cab industry, he didn't take it straight on. He said, can I find a segment, you know, like affluent riders and black car drivers that will give me a foundation that I can build on and then expand from. And, um, and so I'd, I'd read a lot about, you know, Paul Graham at Y Combinator talks about this quite a lot. Like it's better to build a product that a few people love than a product that a lot of people are lukewarm about. And so, um, so with, and that's one of the smartest things I've, I've done yet as an entrepreneur is like pick one community, one group of users and say, how can I build something that's meaningful to this group of users? And if I do that, then I'll earn the right, you know, to, to maybe uh, jump to the next step of the, of the journey. Yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. So now that you've made that jump, you're working with as many people as possible. Um, is it possible to track the data on how much money you're saving people? I mean, like, how, how do you quantify like, hey, your, uh, your identity was about to be floated and you were about to get milked for credit card theft and everything else. How do you guys track your efficacy, your, your worth? Yeah. Well, I mean, just during the pandemic, there are now five states that have credited us with helping to prevent uh, $238 billion in uh, fraud. Um, so that, that's a pretty good one. Uh, you, know, like you said we were, B, you said B, not M. Billion. Yeah. Billion dollars. Um, so you guys just charge a 10% fee, right? And you've got $2.38 billion. I wish. I wish, you know, we, we don't actually make any money from preventing fraud, um, you know, the pandemic. Uh, mm. uh, yeah. To, so for the entrepreneurs listening, uh, I missed that one. But, um, <laughs> you know, we, we had a glass half full uh, business model. Uh, we, we noticed that the data brokers and the credit bureaus charge folks transactionally. And it could be like, oh, it's, you know, 50 cents a ping. The problem is, you know, there's 45 million people in this country that are credit invisible, 26 million people who don't have credit history, 19 million uh, who have thin credit files. And then there's a ton of folks who live overseas as well. And when those people go through and try to verify and they're not in the database, there's this perverse incentive where uh, an organization is being charged because a vendor doesn't have coverage over a legitimate person. And I just felt like those incentives were perverse. And so we created our business model um, to align uh, our incentives as a for-profit company with the user's incentives and with the government's incentives and with the organization's incentives, which is to say we only get paid when we successfully verify that somebody is in fact who they're claiming to be. And government agencies don't pay for you know failed attempts or for fraudulent attempts. Um, and that was something that 
we did intentionally to make sure that our uh, incentives as a business and if we can transform the industry, because now some procurements are being rewritten in that way, um, that we could make sure that that the identity verification uh, industry is never misaligned in terms of generating money at the expense of an individual or an organization. That if you can't verify somebody, you now have um, a business motivation to to improve your product and to make it and to make it better. Um, you know, the other thing that we we really do is we save everyone time. So one way to think about IDME is like Visa for everything, like an easy pass lane versus toll booth workers. And so for one major hotel uh, chain in Las Vegas, the, the worst part of getting into Las Vegas uh, is waiting in line at like happy hour when all your friends are there and you know, you're just like staring at your phone. It's like an hour long line to check into your room. Um, at, at this uh, hotel chain, we, um, we save people over 5 million minutes of their life per month, uh, because they can check in on their phone in uh, in just a few seconds or about a minute, depending on how they verify who they are, and they go straight to their hotel room with their room key and never go to the front desk. And so, when I walk through those properties and I just see that there's no line at the front desk anymore, I smile like every time because the worst part of getting to Vegas is always waiting. And to give people five million minutes of their life back per month on just one workflow, yeah, is is phenomenal. And, um, and that certainly is true of, of all the government agencies that we work as well. You know, we're like at the IRS, the commissioner, uh, the IRS noted that we nearly doubled the access rate from 40% now to north of 70%. Yeah. Um, those are all folks who have had to call the call center or go in person to an office who now have access online. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's really meaningful. Yeah. I, I, full disclosure, I, 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 before I'd met you, uh, I'd gone through this. There was an update I wanted to make on the irs.gov website. And I started asking, they asked a few questions and they're like, Hey, hold up your license <laughs> and, and, you know, and all this other stuff. And they're always like, uh, 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 somebody will be calling you like within the next five minutes. And I'm like, wait, what? And sure enough, they're like, hello, Mr. Wetrick. Just like, okay. Cause I don't know. I'm just, saying that maybe my ID, maybe I looked younger than I did. I don't know. I, I don't know. Who knows? But, uh, but it was great because they're like, all right, you're you. And, yeah. and in some ways I'm like, okay, that was cool. Now I'm, I'm not going to lie. If I wasn't on the IRS, I mean, I, I don't know. Let me just be hundred percent honest. At first I was like, is this a scam? Um, because that was like, anytime you're doing things with the IRS, no offense, to the IRS, you're like, wait a second. But then once I started looking into it and the fact that they, when they called, they gave you a number and they gave you all this other stuff, but then they're like, you're good to go from here on out because you are you. And I, I, I appreciated that, but I said all that to say that I've, I've been through it. The other thing is, is that you'd said, um, people with thin or new credit histories, a pretty good swath of my audience are people in their twenties, yep. uh, people that are startup enthusiasts. Um, is this something that they should look into ASAP because they're just getting started on their journey and they can feel secure? Or is this, um, you know, yeah, is, is this something people in their twenties should should be seriously taking into consideration now? Well, um, for sure. And and what we want to do, you know, in the spirit of like show, don't tell is, is just create access pathways to like financial services and products. When I was a young Lieutenant in the army, you know, I couldn't, um, I couldn't get a credit card from USAA. I eventually got one, but I wasn't in credit records. And so even though I was a 
commissioned officer, I couldn't prove who I was to a military bank. And it, and it took you know, several weeks to, to do that um, before I was finally able to just set up, you know, a basic financial product uh, that we all benefit from. And, and so in our model, we make identity verification more inclusive that if these organizations only have a credit bureau or a data broker, um, and you're not present in records, or what we've also found is that um, women are more likely to change their name in our society, and they're therefore more likely to be listed inaccurately in records. And so if those things are, are, uh, are true, and we have records-based ways in our self-serve flow to get you through, but if that data doesn't match, you're not blocked, you move to video chat to verify, and it sounds like you went through video chat. So that's that's something that only, you know, give or take like 15% of our users uh, have to go through. The other 85 go through the self-serve pathway. And it could be for a variety of reasons. It could be that you have a brand new like phone that doesn't have any, uh, you know, tenure or association to your identity. You could have a VoIP phone, um, which we're not allowed to pass due to the federal requirements. Um, any number, any number of things uh, could move you over. Maybe you don't have credit history. But the cool part is that once you've passed the video chat proofing and your identity is tied to that login, for the second, third, fourth, fifth organization you go to, you now can prove your identity just as rapidly as somebody who went through the self-serve side. Um, so our goal is to, to let all these folks that we verify through video chat that otherwise would be excluded from the online economy to, to prove who they are, to get access to more healthcare and financial services as our network grows. Yeah. And to make those access gains permanent. That's awesome. Um, I, I always like to have an Ill story illustrate this because, um, like, whenever we hear about the macro, we're like, "That's get, I get it." When we hear the micro, we hear the story. We we it really resonates. Yeah. Give me a story that like the your team there was like, "Man, this one made a difference." We really, really, really came through for this lady, for this guy. Give me, give me a, a, a for instance. Yeah. So um, when when we were we were at uh, Veterans Affairs at the time, and and we could just see the limitations of these credit bureau based you know methods where people who were legitimate were being left behind, like young people, old people who don't have credit, either people who live overseas. And so we went to NIST and we said, you've got to create a pathway in the federal requirements for people who are like, you know, homeless veterans or, or folks who are missing from credit records, whatever. And to their credit, they did. And so we created this video chat uh, flow that, that you actually used. And um, one of the very first uh, gentlemen who went through is an 81 year old veteran in Japan. Um, his wife has Alzheimer's. Um, he hadn't been able to access his VA benefits in years. And when he went through, he, he started to cry uh, when we verified him. And it was just one of those moments where it was like, this is, this is why we do what we do. Um, you know, the, the credit bureaus, the data brokers, they were not going to build this pathway for this gentleman uh, to be served in this way. Like, it was just like, well, look, if you're not, if you can't find you in records, just go to the government office in person. And this guy was in Japan. He's 81. He's, you know, dealing with a medical situation with a family member and, that was so such a validation of like, regardless of whatever else, that's why I get up and go to work is because we've now verified about 5 million people through that method. Um, and so, so whenever I think about the numbers, which can, you can like kind of lose the impact for, it's like, man, 5 million, you know, 
experiences like that for people who would otherwise yeah. have been left behind. And that that's awesome. That's a cool story. I'm glad you you gave that um, example. Um, I don't want to get too into the rabbit hole of Elon Musk specifically, but all of a sudden there's this obvious talk of maybe we should start verifying people, not just for celebrity stake that you have a blue check mark, but the, you know, you're you and even, and not even the foreign bots, right? Even the people that are just mean trolls, uh, have you guys are are you guys interested in possibly verification for social media accounts? So this is one of the really cool things about portable consumer centric identity is that um, you know the the reason that the driver's license is our national ID card is because you have a pretty strong incentive to to go get an ID so you're not arrested when you drive, right? But once you have that ID, it unlocks all these kind of like interesting use cases where maybe the incentive to go through a DMV like experience isn't as high, right? Like if somebody said you have to go to the DMV to buy a bottle of wine, you might go, uh, <laughs> I'm good, right? I'm good for tonight. But because you have the driver's license, you can quickly like prove who you are and leverage something that happened in the government. So, so part of our strategy is if you can build this, um, consumer centric network and, and people can uh, verify and get the blue check mark on Twitter by saying like, look, I'm, I'm me, I'm a real human maybe. And I verified at some, you know, government agency or healthcare organization. That's, that's really neat because now you can democratize trust. If the Twitter and other social media algorithm, yes. then wait real human posts over bot posts, you start to tamp down on Russian, you know, and Iranian and North Korean misinformation and disinformation or just assholes or just assholes. And yeah, I mean, like, I, yeah, I, I this, like, this seems so obvious to me. This is insane. Yeah. yeah. Because just the amount of people that are just outright, again, not talk, like just for a second, not talking about foreign actors or people yeah. trying to steal your identity, just people that are stealing your soul, people that are being assholes online and would never be that much of an asshole in real life. The fact that we aren't identifying people and calling, I mean, like, I, I don't know, like this is something I'm dying for. And like Elon, if you're going to listen to this, please do. <laughs> I, like, I, 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 I want more of that, of identifying who you are. You cannot just get on social media and make racist, awful, sexist, whatever ism you want to fill in yeah. tweets without knowing that that's you. Right, right. And I think like the other thing that's really cool is that we verify a host of credentials. Like if you're military, as we discussed, if you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, if you're a first responder, we can verify, you know, um, and we're looking at like legal credentials, like if you're a lawyer or, or a judge. And what's really neat about that is when you have verified attributes, you could begin to search Twitter and other social media platforms by expertise. So you could say like, what are all the lawyers saying about the Twitter acquisition with Elon Musk right wow. now? How, how would this play out, right? Or what do doctors think about this like healthcare legislation? And you can start to be like, I don't even want to deal with the trolls. I just want to deal with like actual medical professionals who wow. know what they're talking about. Wow. Um, and if you can do that pseudonymously too, so there could be like a whistleblower setting where it's like, I want to have like, you know, funky monkey or whatever is my moniker that doesn't mean anything. I'm a verified human and I'm an employee at Enron, right? Mm -hmm. That is verified. And here's what's going on at Enron mm -hmm. but without disclosing your real identity. 
that's what a third party identity layer like IDME can bring to social media. And I'm, um, again, it's one of those like outcomes of like, how does the world benefit when there's a trust layer for the internet? And it'd be really exciting. Well, okay. Now this is really, (laughs) sorry if I'm going down a rabbit hole, because this is, this is my passion. Um, Cause, and this is a tricky one. So social media accounts that are, that are, you know, right now, if you're 14 and you want to get a Twitter, you just lie about your age because online bullying, that's like so many students right now are suffering from a lot of anxiety. I was just saying to a friend not too long ago, and this sounds terrible, please no emails to me. I miss a fist fight. I miss a time because I taught for 21 years. And back when I was teaching in the nineties, when you got hit in the jaw, it was over with. Online bullying can go on for a long time. It was verified. I would say something stupid. I would get hit in the mouth. I would learn that I shouldn't say that enough. And even if it was a bully, that bully was like identified and it was clear when this anonymous stuff. So how would you like, man, if just there were some policies that you could not get a social media account unless you were verified over 16 or over 18 or whatever the policy is, but you were you because this trolls of just being anonymous is just damaging to a lot of students. And I, I know we're shifting away from business and now more to students and social media identities, but like, this is, I, I think among our biggest problems in society right now, and not just for kids, obviously yeah. just online yeah. assholes. Well, yeah. And well, look, my older brother is five years older than me uh, and, you know, beat the shit out of me when I was a kid. So I have a strong sense of justice. It's probably the reason uh, I wanted to become an army ranger because I know what it's like to feel powerless and, um, and, and, you know, what you you can do to help uh, folks who, uh, who can't fight back on their own. Um, You know, but, uh, but, but one, so one thing I think that can really help is if you think about reputation as an ID card in and of itself, uh, whether it's like your positive reputation wow. on eBay or for gaming, that again, this is one of those things. I was talking to the founder of uh, one of the founders of Riot Games, and he was talking about gamers are, are this way too. There's some that are abusive and toxic. But what's cool, again, this is the difference between jerks and people who aren't jerks, is that instead of focusing on like, well, how can I like, you know, know if somebody's a jerk? I mean, that's interesting, but maybe the first order question is like, it's easier to separate the people who aren't jerks and to be like, look, I've, I've interacted on social media platforms or on gaming platforms. I've never had anybody report me for abuse and everything else. So if those users in that like glass have full model, their posts can be amplified. Whereas now like the unverified group of users or the users where the accounts are really new. And it's like, oh, I don't know if, if a troll just created a second account or whatever, those new accounts can be weighted in terms of their their posts and what they're allowed to do, and they can be scrutinized more closely because that's where your risk is at. And so, um, so again, it's wheat from chaff. Like once you can separate the good people and say, "Hey, like these monitor it, but like not super closely," because the best predictor of future behavior, as an FBI pro- profile would tell you, is past behavior. These are the good folks focus on the stuff where there's short tenure uh, and there's less verification and then, you know, be a little bit more um, deliberate about how you allocate your scarce resources there. Yeah. Again, I'm an economics guy. So efficient allocation of scarce resources, that's what identity can, can bring to the table. 
Yeah, I'm I'm parsing it out in my head and I'm having a hard time keeping up with my own thoughts right now because like there I like first of all I'm, you're blowing my mind on just your social credibility like almost gamify it or have star ratings on that you are a who you are b you're a trusted source in whatever I also understand like you know the whole ready player one we're going to live in a metaverse where we don't want to be ourselves anymore you know we're we're uh, a 19 year old guy who can't bench press, you know, 50 pounds. And all of a sudden our avatar is, you know, the Hulk. I understand that, but, um, and, and maybe, and maybe there's, you know, maybe there's some sort of middle. Cause I mean, obviously if we're all verified for every single thing, that's one thing. And if we're just playing games, we're just playing games, but even verifying on, on what your toxicity uh, rate is. So if you're on the metaverse and you're playing, you're like, you have a one-star asshole rating. Um, that's something, but on, 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 when we're talking about, like, I, I don't know, I, I, I keep going back to, to identity Twitter, is, especially like ha- having is, that verified is so important. Identity is all about symmetry when it's done well. Right. So like when things go wrong, there's asymmetries like, um, mm. I'm, I'm selling my used car that I know is a lemon and I'm going to try to get you to buy the Kelly blue book price, even though I know it's not worth that. Right. That's, wow. that's when somebody gets harmed, right? Or I'm, I'm, you know, claiming to be like six foot three and like strapping when in fact, you know, uh, I am, you know, not that or whatever, whatever the case might be on the internet. Like if, if everyone's in the same fantasy together and is saying, look, we all know that we're pretending to be things that we're not here and this isn't being used for harm. Those experiences are awesome. And what kind of the early internet is super fun and kind of awesome to play around with when it gets into like catfishing and somebody's actually manipulating another person and carrying the deception on into like real life dating and, um, and things where they're not being honest with the other person, that's when it can be harmful. And so as long as expectations are aligned and there's no asymmetries that could be harmful, you're okay. And and the internet should always have those weird, fun places that you can just mess around and do whatever you want. It's it's when you start to cross into like outright deception and omission that uh, that things get a lot uh, dicier. That's an interesting viewpoint. I, I uh, the asymmetry is yeah. You I start really thinking about that a lot. I mean, even like you're pretending to be an expert. Who cares? And is completely obviously selling disinformation for profit or or their points. Yeah, um, all the in commercials that we were talking about, right? <laughs> like you probably yeah. want a real doctor and not somebody who slept at a holiday and less. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, man, I off air. We'll talk uh, later. I like the, the social media side is is interesting. I mean, that's that's obviously credit and stealing identities is one thing, but, uh, stealing souls and, uh, hurting people and bullying is, is quite another. Um, yeah. so I'm, I'm glad that you're looking into both. Uh, this has been most enlightening. I am at times at a loss for words because this is, this is vast. I, I don't understand, um, how one takes on obviously a bite at a time, but I'm just left with, I'm probably left with more questions than, I knew how to address and that's, that's rare for me. So I, I, I tip my hat on, on what you're doing. Um, but final piece of advice on, on whatever you see fit on how people might want to like get involved or, 
if they should follow you on on your LinkedIn or whatever, it's 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 your time to like put your best foot forward. You know, for all the budding entrepreneurs, the the most powerful weapon in your arsenal is is the ability to learn. Um, never hold on to ideas so tightly that you become defensive and that you become blind to feedback. Um, you know, I. I told my investors realize this about me before I realized about myself because they're like, hey, Blake, we don't really believe in the business model or anything else, but we believe in you. And then they would invest like $100,000 and send me pictures of their daughter and be like, that's her college fund. <laughs> like, that's so messed up. Like, what? Like, you don't believe in the plan I just told you, but like, you believe in me. And then you just wrote a check for like a ton of money and said that your kid's future like is going to be wrecked. If I, I'm like, who does that to somebody? That's not, that's not cool. But it's, it's because they sensed that I had the humility and the bravery to tell them this assumption proved to not be true. This isn't going to work. Here's what we're going to do about it. And they actually were betting on my ability and our team's ability to learn and to grow and that we would figure it out. And I mean, that's an amazing leap of faith. And so um, if there's anything that has made me successful, it's it's that. It's like being able to learn and not to be defensive when we, we get hard feedback and actually to welcome that hard feedback because those are where the real secrets are at. Um, if folks you know want to um, follow me, I'm certainly on LinkedIn. You can just find me if you just type in Blake Hall, ID me, and then um, Blake underscore uh, Hall uh, on, um, on, on Twitter as well is my Twitter handle uh, if you want to look for me. But Don, this has been a real pleasure. I've I've enjoyed the conversation quite a lot. Thank you. I have too. I, I, I applaud you for what you're doing, the mission you're on, the unbelievable massive task that you're up against. And uh, knowing that you have a mission and uh, you're also willing to throw some of the plans out and, and do hand signals and go into that mission with bravery is, is admirable. So I thank you so much for, for being on the show. Very glad I'm competing against Equifax, not Elon Musk. I'll say that. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom.